are here, coming to you once again from New York City for episode 121 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you China announces new regulatory authority for blockchain and digital payments, Harbor adds SEC license to help security token issuers pay out dividends, and Association of German Banks call for a digital euro. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by returning friend of the show, uh, the one and only Sandra Rowe, CEO of Global Blockchain Business Council. How's it going, Sandra? Very well. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, show number four, I think? I believe so. Yeah, regular returning guest. It's an guest. honor. Thank you. Um, but making a debut, uh, of course, we're joined by Emingen Sira. That's right. I can never say it right, and I feel like I've had a go at it. Please say it for me. You said it exactly right. Emin Gunser. Yes, nailed it. You're CEO of Ava Labs. Uh, how are you doing, Emin? Very good. Thank you very much for having me. No, thank you um, for being on the show. Listen, before we get on with the news, a big thank you to Rise New York for hosting us this week. And... If you're in New York, After Dark is coming your way on the 20th of November. For more information, just Google 11FS Live in New York to grab your free tickets. Or you can go to bit.ly forward slash After Dark NYC. All right, let's get on with the news. First story this week comes from Coindesk, and this is about China announcing a new regulatory authority to certify digital payments and blockchain products. So it was actually the central bank, the PBOC, will certify 11 types of financial technology hardware that are widely used for digital payment and blockchain services. The bank released the first uh, list of fintech products that could be used in both front-end and back-end development for digital payment services. Um, PBOC will grant applicants a certification of fintech product, CFP, if their products press prototype examination and on-site checks. The certificate will be reviewed and renewed every three years. Uh, the new regulatory system comes at a time when China is accelerating the development of new financial infrastructure, including a digital version of its currency, which was recently promoted by Xi Jinping to capitalize on blockchain technology. Uh, Sandra, you were just in Asia. Um, how's this resonating for you? It's, does this feel more like uh, a type of sandbox and fintech licensing, or is it sort of, does it have a draconian edge, or is that just Western eyes looking at it. So I, I did not actually spend any time in China. I was in Hong Kong mm -hmm. and uh, Tokyo and then rounded off in Singapore. But I will have to say the developments out of Beijing are, in my mind, a game changer. And I think people need to pay attention. Um, do not underestimate the ability and the scale that they've got. Uh, yesterday, I was at a stablecoin event and someone referred to, I did not, but someone else referred to any China product that would come out as a um, surveillance tool. So if we were to take that view, then obviously we may have a skeptical Western lens to it. But I would take a different approach, which is um, the products that they are certifying effectively allow for these startups to have the backing of government, which is a big deal. I think that people have been crying out for regulatory certainty for quite some time. And here is, here is absolute clarity. Absolutely. And, and I think we should look at it from that lens, because what do we have in the U.S.? So, from my perspective, I think what's going on in China is kind of interesting. And uh, it's exactly as many of us predicted, which is sovereigns in this space will have this schizophrenic approach to regulation. You will see them banning it. 
you will see them unbanning it, and then you will suddenly see them actually encouraging it. So um, what Sandra said, what happened with uh, the premier, premier Xi's announcement was fantastic. It's groundbreaking. It's an amazing flip from, you know, just about a year and a half ago or two years ago, they were banning uh, quite a few crypto companies. And now suddenly we have the exact opposite, a welcoming and, uh, and a thrust to have China be at the forefront of this technology. This is a fantastic move. Does the PBOC's national currency potentially, do, it, yes, it boosts digital payments, but does it compete with commercial products from Alipay or WeChat? Or is it sort of something that sits underneath those and enables them? I think the way it's going to work out is they're going to find a way to make that ecosystem work in conjunction. It is not the Chinese way for the government to compete with private enterprise. And, um, uh, you know, and what I suspect is going to happen is there's going to be some complementary products formed. But I see two big trends here. Uh, one of them is the schizophrenic ban, unban kind of thing. We might see uh, China banned certain aspects of, of crypto. There are cryptos that are used for Ponzi schemes and so forth. And China is very attuned and very sensitive to that, that kind of usage. You might see bad news coming out of China. I generally just disregard them. That is, uh, they're trying to manage their own population. They're trying to manage uh, the sort of the evolution of the space. What matters is that the, the curve is in the right direction, which is towards better acceptance, greater acceptance of crypto. And the second thing that I see that's very important uh, to notice is that you're not seeing sovereigns latch onto a single coin or just a small set of coins or a national coin of their own. So China is going to produce something that's going to be a stable coin, sure, but they are also opening up the space to competition. And so we're going to see more and more coins. I think we're going to see the exact opposite of the maximalist approach from uh, the, uh, the sovereigns. And this is fantastic because it's high time for, uh, for evolution in this space. It's high time for more competition. So I, I will, because um, we want to make this interesting, right? Yeah, so good. I will take a slightly different view on this, and it does concern me. I actually do wonder um, whether this is another prong in the uh, long, very long game of uh, the renminbi dominance and uh, competition against dollar. So as an a former FX person, I'm going to just throw out a couple of statistics. Um, and this is not from the latest BIS report, but um, the one in 2016. And it's only done every three years. But $5.1 trillion goes through the um, FX markets every day, roughly, of which 87% is a dollar leg. So without doubt, if you look at just the numbers, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. However, if you look at the SWIFT numbers around rankings around currency, if you look at where China Chinese renminbi is now in terms of cross-border um, trade, you will see that it has gone from number seven to number four, and it's probably number three at this point. Someone needs to go check where whether it's, it's at number three, but um, it's moving up the rankings. And so at some point, you have a U.S. dollar versus renminbi situation. Now, people throw out the argument, oh, wait, wait a minute, but the capital controls, like no one's going to use renminbi. People should look at trade finance and invoicing. Everything that China does in Africa, in South America, et cetera, et cetera, it's renminbi denominated. And if, if that isn't the beginnings of renminbi influence. Um, I don't know what is. And I think viewing that through the prism of Belt and Road Initiative and and the broader sort of economic influence that China looks to have, which let's face it, the U this is straight out of the U.S.'s playbook. The U.S. did it from the Marshall Plan. The U.S. has done it with dollarization, with the euro dollar markets, the dollar dollar. It, it's been happening for for quite some time. This is just somebody else doing the same thing, right? It's not necessarily bad. It's just some. It's different. But don't um, you think it's bizarre that? 
that the U.S. government is actually going in the opposite direction and not looking at a digital U.S. dollar, and the Fed is almost the opposite stance of the PBOC. Well, and yes and no. There have been some quotes from Jerome Powell saying, hey, we should look at this now, but I think it is sort of a, a wake-up, oh, we should do it. And it's it's weird that sort of Libra came along out of left field um, and has forced this conversation of things that were, were happening and bubbling underneath the surface. And, you know, if you're an opportunist, suddenly moving towards digital tokens feels like an opportunity to have the lowest friction, most competitive currency in the global market. If you already have the most dominant currency in the global market, change change seems scary. And it's weird how the incumbent fears change and the challenger would quite like that change. Exactly. I think um, back to Sanders' point about where the the regulators in the U.S. are going, um, I was actually quite encouraged by what happened with the EOS ruling. Uh, where the SEC said very, very explicitly that they don't want to intervene with the, with a heavy hand and uh, they would like to see this kind of technology flourish in the U.S. So I think we're beginning to see uh, the regulators uh, begin to realize that this is a critical field and, uh, and that they need to, to exercise a light touch. I am really excited about 2020. Do you know why? Why is that? Because I think between Libra and China, we, the acceleration in this discussion and things actually moving on the sovereign front on digital assets is um, going to be faster than anything we've been sitting here for the last, whatever, five, oh, six, eight years. You think it's all going to happen suddenly? Absolutely. 2020 is going to be an amazing year. Every week we're hearing new headlines. Right. I mean, I do. I actually believe that. Right. I wonder if we're at peak um, central bank digital currency because, um, like, if, if I think about um, Bank of England working paper 605, sorry, listeners, you know I go on about that all the time. <laughs> but it, but it, it is, you know, the, the economic work on this was done a number of years ago. Um, but actually what came out from the Bank of England was we need to do a real-time growth settlement upgrade and be ready for digital tokens if and when they come along. And I think that's quite a sober analysis of where we may see PBOC land. Well, just this morning, uh, the Turkish uh, president announced uh, plans for a Turkish central bank-issued lira and uh, on, on a blockchain. It's an amazing announcement. Just as Sanders said, every week it brings a new announcement. But do you remember 2015 when every bank was doing a thing with DLT? And now some are, credibly. Sure. But I wonder if there's a time horizon So thing. you think that they're going to actually be stymied, not that they don't want to do it, but they'll be stymied by the reality of old legacy infrastructure and payments. Bingo. Got it. Okay. So I, I could see that being a, a valid... Um, but yeah. I th- but I think so. Then the question becomes: If you're if you're battling legacy and you want to leave your legacy, how do you go about doing that? How does the central bank innovate? And the one of the things when we're dealing with banks at eleven FS is we always think about: Well, maybe the goal isn't just the efficiency and enhancements and the transformation stuff. Everybody should be doing that. But how? What's the option? What what option do I buy on the future? And where are the where's the new commerce coming from? And I think about online communities and I think about space where commerce is growing as being the space where I'd start, rather than trying to go into deep financial infrastructure and upgrade it, why not start where commerce is growing? It's an interesting idea to play with. That, that's an interesting take on this. So I actually often tell people, people ask me, like, when are we going to see stocks on a blockchain? Mm-hmm. And um, they expect that there will be some kind of a day when we wake up and every stock certificate is on a blockchain. Suddenly somebody mm-hmm. patches over. And um, I don't expect there to be such a day. What I really expect is that already all the cool projects are issuing tokens. And we will simply organically replace the legacy. It's just going to happen a piece at a time. And one piece at a time. All right, um, link story 
here comes from Coindesk as well. Um, Binance are opening a Beijing office amid China's renewed blockchain push. Um, so, of course, uh, relations between Binance leadership and Chinese authorities appear to have warmed a year after China's censorship firewall blocked access to the Binance website. Uh, of course, the CEO CZ said on Twitter Thursday that Binance currently sees a few million dollars a day worth of volume from Chinese users, especially with the peer-to-peer functionality. So the prodigal son is returning, it seems. I think it just tells you how much the landscape can change. And as I was saying about flipping, things will flip. And it is schizophrenic at times. Um, Isn't it interesting that people look at crypto and they immediately are terrified by it, but the closer they get to it, they go, oh, wait, this is interesting. And oh, wait... You mean it's traceable and it's transparent? And by the way, I actually talk about it as a risk management tool or a risk mitigation tool, and people are always puzzled by that. I said, what other function do you or technology do you know that has an embedded reporting, verification reporting, and audit um, uh, attributes in 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 the network? Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you need to take a look at what it does mm-hmm. um, before you start freaking out about the fact that it's crypto. And I think this is the perception versus reality problem. Consistently. And then when something scarier comes along on the horizon and changes its logo to all caps, um, then <laughs> for those that don't know, uh, Facebook changed their logo to all caps. But but it represents fear in the eyes of a policymaker. And suddenly they have to go look at the, the competition. And as they do so, hopefully we're seeing people come up the knowledge curve. And sometimes that takes time. Right. But I think this move by CZ is interesting. So um, it's going to cause all sorts of uh, issues uh, and it's going to trigger all sorts of things. So I think one of the things it's going to trigger is uh, more uh, invasive regulation. So access to these platforms brings with it access to unregulated securities offerings. And then that's going to be one of the next big fights to to have. And Binance is in an amazing position. Um, I do not envy CZ at all. I think he he just eats regulatory risk for breakfast. This is, is he's gotten, uh, he's gone, you know, he's gone shopping for jurisdictions. He's gone around the world um, to find just the right uh, uh, location for for uh, for his company, and uh, he's, he's shopped around. But really, at the end of the day, there's really nowhere to run to. Right, Malta is not off Earth; it's still regulated, and at some point, uh, there will be a reckoning day when they come for it. But isn't it interesting? I remember a story about a year ago where the the European Banking Authority was was sort of standing on Malta quite heavily around some of its its controls or perceived lack thereof controls, um, and Malta as kind of a semi offshore jurisdiction was was seen under the highlights. And then, of course, Malta then went and published some of their some of their own laws and regulations around management of crypto. And when people and lawyers looked at that, they said this isn't this isn't simple you know this is kind of international standard stuff like if if you adhere to this then it, you might as well be regulated anywhere in the market and so the only question became can Malta actually enforce that mm-hmm. which is a different question right and I will tell you there are companies that were looking at setting up shop in Malta figured out how hard it was as a crypto business to set up and did not mm-hmm. and and then actually having a clear framework uh, having potentially one of the largest exchanges in the world welcomed back into the country is great advertising and great marketing. It's interesting that... It absolutely is. Um, and bright line rules are things that we all clamor for, right? Bright line rules that tell you what's legal and what's not are things that everybody is asking for. And of course, it's the main thing that people are asking for from the US regulators. Um, I'm not sure that this is really it. That is, we're not seeing China actually establish clear bright line rules yet, but at least they are welcoming and they're taking steps in the right direction. 
But I do wonder, I mean, look, there's Binance US now, which is now effectively ring-fenced because they have to deal with American KYC AML in a very different way than the rest of Binance. So if Binance China exists, will it have its own set of rules Mm -hmm. and therefore be ring-fenced as well? Doesn't it feel like everything's moving towards um, lots of e-money licenses and lots of money transmitter licenses in lots of jurisdictions, and then you're losing some of the benefit of what this technology offered, which was the free movement of value around the world? Absolutely. Mm. All right. But I will actually say one thing that a regulator said to me. Think about the trade-offs. You could have the freedom to transact frictionlessly, and that would be great for the end user. But if that end user gets scammed because there's no KYC AML and no regulation, how is that also on the other extreme a good thing? It's interesting, though, and it's a fair question, but I wonder... So it it always struck me that regulation was a set of rules in paper and somebody with a gun that could come and force you to make sure that the thing was undone. Uh, With this technology, are there not other solutions? And I think that's something that when uh, when you're a regulator and you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, But when you're a technologist, everything looks like technology. There's probably something in the middle ground. And I think the work that the guys at um, Wire are doing, SendWire and and, uh, the guys at CoinFirm and Elliptic and Chainalysis around not only Uh, transaction monitoring solutions, but the ongoing kind of understanding of that network and where risk is and risk management, to to your point earlier, Sandra, is a really interesting space. Um, Speaking of, whilst we're on the reg theme, story comes from the block. Harbor have received a transfer agent license from the SEC to help security token issuers pay out dividends. Um, So they are a security token platform called Harbor. And uh, the license will enable them to keep records of security token ownership and payout dividends, of course. Um, The firm hopes to attract blockchain companies looking to do a Reg A plus offering, which requires the engagement of a transfer agent. Of course, um, it was Blockstack recently that did Reg A plus. um, But I don't know that there's a big line of other blockchain companies waiting to do a Reg A plus offering. Have you heard of it? I haven't heard of very many companies. I've been I've been in the trenches. So, you know, at Ava Labs, we're looking to do our own mainnet release in the upcoming months. Mm-hmm. And so I've been keeping tabs. And, and the short answer is no. Uh, the thing that uh, happens if you go with a Reg A plus offering is that you cannot be traded on standard exchanges. And that's a real problem. There you go. Um, but it's it's interesting. Harbor has been around for a little while now. They're uh, A16Z backed. And they seem to play in this interesting space of kind of reducing the friction uh, around a number of asset classes, especially uh, if they, they played, I think, initially in uh, real estate. And a lot of real estate funds were looking to work with a different investor class. So how do you pull liquidity to invest into a real estate fund? This was typically something you had to do at a, a very um, sort of massive level with massive investors because the cost of doing the KYC and the due diligence on lots of smaller investors just became overwhelming and 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 an admin nightmare and took years and years and years. So Harbor in building a digital platform could potentially democratize access to real estate investing and then everybody talks about and gets excited about the secondary market you could in theory create if you uh, if you were to tokenize um, access to real estate. But then that's that sounds great on paper, but then when you try and practically do some of this stuff, it doesn't always work. And they're A16Z backed, so they're an interesting company, but um, there's an economics question here, Sandra, that really, really sticks with me. Yep, and I think a lot of people have started raising the question around, if you tokenize illiquid assets, are you actually going to make them more liquid? The short answer is no. Liquidity is attract- 
um, you get liquidity because you've got buyers and sellers Mm -hmm. and lots of them or at least um, enough to um, create, uh, you know, fluid markets. Um, I think where we are probably at right now is we need to have the technology and the companies that are obviously evolving um, the ability to, to tokenize things. But we don't have enough of a market participant ecosystem to actually create the liquidity that we need. But then there is probably maybe ten percent of the both buy and sell side that finds this really compelling. When, uh, especially in Europe, I think there's a lot of the investment banks who are hurting for new revenue sources, are hurting for things that they can take to their buy side. Um, this is potentially that. Exactly. So we've been doing a lot of talking to Wall Street firms about uh, Ava as an asset asset uh, issuance platform. And um, we're seeing two things. One, there are a lot of illiquid assets left over even from the 2008 crisis on people's balance sheets. And they're not being traded. And if, if one could open them up, uh, it would be an enormous boon to a lot of people's bottom lines. But the, the biggest, one of the biggest impediments is actually doing so in a compliant fashion. And most of the current technology is just not there at all. Uh, it doesn't support compliant asset issuance. Bingo. So let's double click on that because that's the question I always get, which is how do you make this stuff comply? And I say, it's very hard. Shall we get a whiteboard and talk about this for a few years? Right. <laughs> well, I can tell you what we're doing. Um, and uh, it's it's very different from everybody else's. This is one of the big things that sets all of our part from everyone else, all 2,000 other coins, which is we have a different network model. Everybody else inherited the same model from Bitcoin, which is you have one coin and one network. And that's a network of volunteers that come together without any kind of agreement. And uh, it's a very hard network to evolve. It's a very hard network to build on because you don't know legally what you're building on. It's just sort of there. And it's extra legal. It's on the side of our legal platform. In AVA, we have this notion of of one coin, AVA, but you can have many other coins, each with their own rules of how they behave. A realist, a fractionalized real estate token is one of our use cases, for example. And um, I should be able to issue this and um, I can say, hey, this thing has, you know, and you can throw in additional features if you want, if you want anonymity, et cetera, et cetera. You can throw in constraints as well. So yeah. that these things must happen and before this, uh, before this asset. Well, let me tell you how we do it. And uh, it's very simple, actually. And it's such a dumb idea that I don't understand why the 2,000 other coins before us did not come up with this. But quite simply, when it's time to build the network, when it's time to issue your coin, you say, look, I'm not going to issue this on the lowest common denominator network. I'm going to issue this on nodes that are purple. Now, what's a purple node? Well, that's the beginning of a conversation. You get to dictate what somebody has to do to become purple. So now I can say things like, look, for me to give you the purple badge, you have to have more resources than the regular node. Or you have to put up a bond. You have to sign something. There has to be a legal agreement. You have to uh, obey a whitelist. You have to enforce a whitelist. Exactly. Whatever you might want to do, we can enforce at the subnetwork level. That's pretty interesting. So that is effectively baking in um, compliance rules into, uh, and then incentivizing. Yeah. A group to want to be the preferred node. Compliance as a service. Exactly. Beautiful. Uh, I think we just uh, shilled it. And speaking of shilling it, um, I've got to shill it for the good old friends at R3. Shout out to Todd <laughs> McDonald. Uh, developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And we all know Todd McDonald is very interoperable, bless him. Um, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, shape, size, or in any industry. Uh, with Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain 
time. Uh, and a free trial of Caller Enterprise is now available at r3.com. So head on over to check it out. Alrighty, on with the show. Next story comes from The Block, and this is an association of over 200 German private banks calling for a digital euro. Um, the lobby group of more than 200 banks has called for a programmable digital euro and a common pan-European payments platform. Um, whilst the single European payments area, or SEPA, already exists, it's not yet possible to integrate it into digital processes and with smart contracts, said the association kind of goes back to the theme around PBOC. It feels like banks have got the joke around these digital tokens. They really drank the Kool-Aid. Mm. It's amazing and it's fantastic to see. And this is very much a reaction to Libra, by the way. Yeah, I, completely. Surely it has to be. But uh, you know, in Europe, that, that dream of the single integrated payments infrastructure has been around as long as... I can probably as long as I've been alive, like it, it, it's we always push for it and we always get something that's not quite it. And then 10 years later, we come back and push for it again. Uh, this is just that ongoing saga, Sandra, right? Yes. People love the idea of this unified, common, frictionless, um, move money around easily, but yet the reality is, is often disjointed, disappointing. Yeah and just plain dismal at times, right? Yeah, we're always trying to make um, it more efficient, and it's just hard. But it's there was a, there's a bit of a dig against uh, stablecoins, um, and uh, I think that this idea that Europe must keep up with the competition so that the global financial architecture does not lead to polarization between American and Chinese solutions, said the association. So it's like Europe's like, I'm here too. <laughs> but it's an association of 200 German private banks, of course. It's not anybody um, in the ECB or European Commission or central bank. So important to say where it came from. Interesting that there's a desire to be seen on the global stage as having your own stable coin. Um, but the smaller banks, I guess, are, are calling this out. I mean, look, I don't know what the German banks got together and said, oh, yes, we need our own thing now. But I think there is this view that there is a competition, which just was not as readily, I think, apparent, at least in my mind, um, until very recently. This wasn't a thing six months ago. No, exactly. It, it was not. They've got FOMO. They've got yeah. FOMO, like every trader has FOMO. They have this, they have FOMO. It really has moved from like ICOs and Bitcoiners and, and like taxi drivers having FOMO to central banker FOMO is a thing, people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if you think about it, it's a bit astonishing, right? Because central bankers before the crisis, no one even thought about. Then the crisis happened and they were printing money left and right and everyone in the central banking community had a light shined on them. And now the view is somehow they're being attacked by the digital community. I think you've got a really good point there because I think actually the the view is the central bankers are being attacked and they got at the center of it. But how much of it was actually not cent central banking and how much of it was policymaker and treasury teams? Because it, it, it was the politics. So it was earlier this month, Germany's finance minister not the central banker, the finance minister said that it was in favor of a digital euro saying we should not leave the field to China, Russia, the US, or any private providers. Right. Uh, it is often the politicians that see this role more so than the central bankers who tend to be very measured as they have to be. So being fair to them. But they always seem to end up in, in the middle of the spotlight. And that's bizarre to me because when you think about what central bankers need to focus on, it's financial stability, monetary policy, mm -hmm just making sure that their particular currency is managed properly and the debts managed properly of their country. 
So the fact that there there's even limelight on central bankers is just very bizarre. Although it was interesting that, uh, uh, at least in the Bank of England, they own the payment systems as well. So there is a like, oh, why would they be looking at payments? But that's not true everywhere. In in the US, for instance, a lot of the banks own some of the payment systems and and ACH and beyond. So, um, and the clearinghouse. And so it's not the same everywhere. But uh, interesting that Europe's going to Europe. Um, all right. Um, story from CoinDesk. Um, FATF, um, the Financial Action Task Force, of course, um, or, or something else, uh, has released guidance on global digital identities as use cases grow. Sandra is smiling. Sandra, what made you smile about this one? I th- always thought we needed a uh, global identity um, common ground. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that it's FATF coming out and saying this first is um, interesting to me. Isn't it? Because digital identity, I mean, famously, India has Aadhaar, uh, which is your know, kind of biometric-based identity, and some people are really worried that does that mean the end of privacy? Um, we've seen a number of digital... I- China has digital identity, but also Scandinavia um, has digital identity. The Netherlands has digital identity, and those are places that take privacy really quite seriously. So the two aren't necessarily incompatible. Well... Uh, from my perspective, I think I do not expect any of these efforts to actually yield anything that I would consider acceptable. Um, all sovereigns that are going into digital identity solutions are using technologies that sadly reveal way too much at the point of authentication. So um, what I think uh, I expect uh, will happen is that true innovation is going to come from private enterprise and it's going to use a construct uh, industrial systems that we call in cryptography, we call zero knowledge proofs. And uh, the core of identity authentication must rely on me proving something to you without revealing who I am. And all of these solutions, all of the standard identity solutions we see... Reveal emerging, who you are. They reveal who you Which are. Which creates an attack surface because uh, if I'm revealing who I am to the good guy, I'm also potentially that vulnerable to be attacked and have my data stolen from, from, from the bad guy. I, I think this is the the issue at the crux of, of society today. That is, people compiling information on all of us, people building dossiers on all of us. We would never have stood for this, right? This is like the Secret Service kind of stuff that people do routinely for, in the name of ad tech. It's the Higgs boson of the global economy is digital identity. You fix that and everything else makes sense. I mean, think about it. How often do you give out your phone number, your address, your name, and you can't get through certain firewalls without or, or um, websites without putting in your email? Mm-hmm. You're literally giving out information multiple times a day. Yeah, I, I definitely use cowsmoo at you.com five times a day. Uh, give me the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Whoever owns that email address, I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, that's got me a lot of free Simon's ruining your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, FATF are an interesting organization. They primarily uh, deal with uh, kind of harmonizing and coordinating rules around anti-money laundering. And let's face it, anti-money laundering is something, um, money laundering is something we really want to prevent. I mean, some of the horrors of the world, like human trafficking, sex slavery, um, modern slavery, um, kind of uh, everything from unethical sort of uh, diamonds uh, sourcing and, and mining, like preventing that is worthwhile. Preventing people from getting scammed is worthwhile. But historically, the way we've done that is to rely on the banking system. And the banking system has been woefully inequipped at doing so. And it's been so inept that the banks themselves have received multi-billion dollar fines. And what they've done is increased the amount of people who are doing the thing that was inadequate before in the hope of of preventing it more. Um, But then digital ID comes along 
potentially is a huge part of solving that. But then you've kind of got this, you've got this interesting tension, as you say, is like, you've got the anti-money laundering push on one side, and then you've got the privacy push on the other side. And Facebook's kind of in the middle of all of that, because Facebook's being really beaten up because of how they've used our data and, and the whole Cambridge Analytica and how that was manipulated. And on the other side, there's this worry about, oh, you're doing this anonymous coin. It is the two things society and policymakers are really wrestling with. Mm-hmm. They end up wanting something and it's opposite at the same time. It's it's very difficult to walk that line. Um, but uh, as I said, I think zero-knowledge proofs actually provide a, a way out of this, which is um, I need to prove to you only that which you need to know about me, the fact that I'm over the age of 18 without revealing my birthday. The moment I reveal my birthday, the game is over. So the, the draft guidance from FATF was really interesting because it specifically listed DLT as a tool that can aid in the growth of digital ID networks. And um, there's a number of companies that have been around for some time that have been playing that space. Uport, Civic, Civic. Uh, you, you name those guys. Right. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, Evanim have been around for quite some time and really, really interesting. There's Sovereign, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, right. looking at self-sovereign identity. And I think a lot of people um, in the AML space, when they see... When when they hear self-sovereign identity, they assume, oh, you mean you're just going to assert your identity by yourself and we're going to remove any authority from the network? And uh, listeners, you can't hear this, but both um, Sandra and Ema just shook their head knowingly. So you've heard that a lot, but no, of course a bank will still identify you and people. there will still be points of trust in a given network. But the idea of building trust networks just seems so obvious that it's weird to me that it's taking a while for it to go through. Well... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Um, I call it the village model. So in a village or a small town, everyone knows who you are. And frankly, well, they probably know too much. But um, the point being is someone could point out who you are. And even if there was collusion or an evil actor, you have enough people in a village that could say, hey, um, that's actually so-and-so, and you have multiple points of verification. You take that and put it in a digital network. Um, to me, that's pretty obvious. I agree with you. It's amazing to me how long it's taken for us to kind of try to replicate that. And, and so Tim Berners-Lee is now actively working on the the sovereignty over my own data. And under GDPR, I own my own data. But the reality is that's just a legal construct. And the practical reality, you know, possession is nine-tenths. Yep. And Google has my data. I don't. I may legally own it, but possession is still nine-tenths. And Google's possessing it. <laughs> Facebook is possessing it. And Whatever tools they do or do not give me is my only way to access that. And I don't know where it's gone. Whereas actually, with uh, what, I, what I really love about DLT is this idea that it's the auditor for the world. Like, did those rules get followed? And do we all agree that those sequence of events, that global state machine, agreed that where we got to was in fact where we got to with, with, with cryptography? That's a nice place to be. Um, we can see that my data did land there and my data was deleted. That instruction was followed and all of the devices around that came to that conclusion. So one thing that's, um, that's kind of interesting in this space is the, so you asked the question of why aren't we seeing civics of the world coming up with more innovative solutions? Partly it's because they're hampered by the need to make money and it's very difficult to make money off of digital identity. I would really love to see the sovereigns come into this space and actually put some money into research around privacy-preserving identity mechanisms. So I look at a company though like Onfido in the UK, they do just the KYC element for challenger banks and they're now being adopted by more of the bigger 
banks. Like you think about um, the cost of acquiring a bank account just at the most basic level, never mind at sort of the corporate level. I mean, it's it's a couple hundred dollars just to KYC you, and that's before I've credit checked you or, or anything else on the back back of that. If I can get that down to twenty dollars, mm. that's a that's something worth paying for. So I think that the business case there makes sense, but it, it's often putting that in front of the right person at the right organization with the right business case that solves their problem. And then also, this isn't really a KYC issue. Like that, that presenting your documentation is almost the easy part. It's the ongoing management of you once you've been KYC'd. Do you continue to be a risk as you present new transactions throughout the network? And you kind of need to be licensed and regulated to perform that role. So a technology vendor can't do that for you. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, um, look for innovative solutions in that space. Like how will the banks themselves, you know, Dave Birch is a good friend of mine. He's been the, the fintech OG. He's been saying for quite some time, it's strange to him that the banks haven't offered this, but I really do believe it's not a lack of imagination in the banks. It's a view as to, it's an execution question. Can they actually get it done? So one other thing I'd like to bring up as a techie is, is the following. Um, I was around when the internet came up, right? When, when it became big. I mean, it was always around, uh, uh, but, uh, but suddenly, you know, it went overnight really, really big on these open platforms. Open fora became a thing. People started discussing things online. And the immediate reaction by every lawmaker, every older person in, in Congress was, let's have a driver's license for the internet. People are saying things and I'm uncomfortable uh-huh. with it. I'd like to know who's behind the, you know, this trollish ID. I'd like to know who's sending me emails. I'd like to know this, that, and the other. And um, they were unsuccessful. And there is now a different generation coming in. They're completely comfortable with the idea that you will have your own persona and then possibly multiple personas online, that that's okay. Even though you could pretend to be anybody online, um, we know that when you send a bomb threat, we know how to trace it back to you ultimately. But for every intended purpose, you can hide who you are uh, in peer-to-peer interactions. I feel that the same could be true if we play our cards right in the financial space. We've been used to this idea that every interaction must be monitored KYC day and And that's not really true, right? All I need to do is I, I need to make sure that you are not exceeding some amount of you know, un, unaccounted income per month or year or what have you. And there are technological ways of doing this without having to rely on essentially the equivalent of a driver's ID in every well, transaction. So that's what's interesting to me about the transaction monitoring tools from Chainalysis, Elliptic, CoinFirm and others is they can they can identify suspicious activity without identifying the individual. And if mm-hmm. they can also identify the wallet endpoint and therefore whomever's using that could probably go to that endpoint and say, hey, who, who is that person? We, you know, law enforcement absolutely love um, transaction monitoring. And this is why I think the conversation around Bitcoin and others has started to change is because they've realized, oh, wow, this is actually really, really effective. There's also a practicality question as well. So if the end game is to protect people from people doing evil things like money laundering, terrorism, slavery, et cetera, et cetera, then the notion that you can monitor and effectively catch every single transaction, especially in a world where data and transactions are exploding um, and going exponential, it, we got to be smarter about finding the bad transactions and actors uh, and not about 
KYCing AML every single transaction. It yeah, just it, will not work. I think it's it's a 20th century solution to a 21st century problem. Absolutely. And and we need better ones. But I'm really encouraged by the fact that FATF has has uh, kind of moved on this. And you know, at Global Digital Finance, we do a lot of work with uh, with FATF and and other organisations. And there is an AML working group. So if you're listening and you're interested, um, do reach out to uh, hello at gdf.io, um, and we can connect you with those guys. And uh, you know, it's, it's a subject that really interests me. Uh, I think inside a lot of the banks, this is an area that causes a lot of regulatory risk, uh, and frankly, could be something that's improving their day-to-day lives in terms of how they're KYCing high-risk customers. Um, if if you're dealing with complex company hierarchies and you don't know who the underlying kind of beneficiaries are of a given transaction, that's hard work and it's expensive work. And banks are sort of having to de-risk entire sectors rather than having technology solutions to some of those problems. Right, but let's also face it: policymakers. Laws that allow for layering of SPV after SPV, it's, that's part of the problem, right? Yeah, it's not the banks that are the problem. It's the fact that we have an infrastructure that allows for the layering and the sort of dodgy, you know, putting your name, putting an SPV and then putting a whole bunch of stuff in it and nobody knows who owns it. Well, this is what happened with OneCoin. I don't know if you've been listening to the case of the missing crypto queen by a good friend of mine, uh, Jamie Bartlett um, over at the BBC. But um, as he started to look at OneCoin, Coin, he realized there's an SPV in Bermuda that's registered to something in London that's registered out of the Cayman Islands, it's registered out of blah, blah, blah. And, and eventually it just becomes impossible to follow the money because there's these complex legal structures. But that's so easy to do. Like you, you, you hear about it and you think this is some hard thing to do. It's like, you no, know, creating a company is like 13 pounds on companieshouse.gov.uk. Like it's. Absolutely. Uh, New York State just passed a law. You cannot buy real estate anymore through an LLC. Mm. Um, and I think we'll probably see more of that coming. Anyway, I'm going to move us to the next story. Um, we'll, we'll get off our collective soapboxes and, and talk about this one from Bloomberg. Um, a lone Bitcoin whale likely fueled the 2017 price surge, a study says. Uh, so University of Texas professor John Griffin and Ohio State University's Amin Sham... Um, interesting name, created a stir last year by alleging that Bitcoin's astronomical surge in 2017 was probably triggered by manipulation. Um, They're now suggesting a single market whale was likely behind the misconduct, uh, who seemingly has the power to move the prices at will. Um, They say uh, they've updated their paper first published in 2018 and say the transactions rely on Tether a widely used digital token that is meant to hold its value at one US dollar. One entity on the Bitcoin cryptocurrency exchange, Bitfinex, appears capable of sending the Bitcoin price higher when it falls below certain thresholds. The research paper is foundationally flawed, a Tether lawyer has said. Interesting. Um, Let's turn to our uh, resident academic... uh, Professor, <laughs> immigrant zero. Uh, what did you think when you saw this? So I read this paper in detail. It's a fascinating paper, and um, uh, it's a very divisive paper. And I'll try to be fair in uh, in judging uh, both our sets of arguments. I think uh, what they've found is correlation between uh, certain price moves and tether activity, and that correlation is very, very, very suggestive. But it's not conclusive. It cannot be. It's, it's, it's just correlation at the end of the day. It's not causation. And to prove causation, you need subpoena power. So uh, what we're seeing here is a very is a fascinating study. Um, it's been called into question. And there are a couple of things that uh, have been called into question. One of them is this notion of a single whale. 
Um, it's it's uh, the argument goes that of course there is a single address. That's because these are exchanges that pool their tethers, and this is just settlement among exchanges. And there's quite a lot of validity to that argument as well. So, um, uh, so what should one do or think? Um, I've actually thought quite a bit about Tether, and and I frankly don't know what to think anymore. Um, there are things that call the entire idea into question. Uh, we know from the NYAG, the New York Attorney General's uh, investigation, that there were long periods of time when it was advertised as being fully backed, and it wasn't fully backed. So that's that's pretty bad. Um, on the other hand, um, I think uh, you know we have all of the connections in place to to people who are who are insiders uh, to suspect that maybe you know there are times when it was actually a perfectly well functioning uh, thing that injected liquidity and a means of transferring USD USD value uh, between exchanges. So it serves a, a critical function in the ecosystem. And that's the old correlation doesn't equal causation. Um, I, I, it is an excuse for me to bring up one of my favorite websites, which is Spurious Correlations. Um, my personal favorite is the per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese uh, is almost perfectly correlated to civil engineering doctorates awarded um, from <laughs> 2000 through 2009. Crazy. So, Great. you know, I think, and that's why correlation doesn't equal causation. So we we have to be careful here. But then there's the old, there's no smoke without fire. So it, it's going to be hard to get the stench off this one. There is one way to get it off, and uh, that is to invite a, a clean, simple audit. Ah, uh, yes, the A word. I mean, you really have to open up your books, right? Yeah. And if they refuse to open up their books, then... No, no, you can't look at my taxes. No, 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 don't look at my taxes. Yeah, it, it just... Smells funny when that happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Alrighty. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, story from the block: uh, The UK has updated its crypto taxation guidance, stressing that crypto like Bitcoin uh, are neither currency nor securities. Um, Coindesk Jack Dorsey backs a ten million dollar round for a token offering platform. Jack Dorsey is swinging for the fences on crypto, um, and tonally just seems to be nailing it. In contrast to Facebook. Um, story from the block: um, Binance US supports debit card on ramp. As volumes top fifteen million dollars, Binance just just keep going up. They're, they they seem to be really really effective. Um, story from the block: Robinhood is seeking a chief compliance officer for its crypto unit. So uh, if you are a crypto nerd and a compliance nerd, that seems like a fun one. All right, it's time for tweet of the week. Tweet 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the Crypto Dog at the Crypto Dog on Twitter. Um, and uh, he, uh, rather interestingly, he says, It's been over a week since Xi Jinping pumped Bitcoin, and we still haven't bled out completely. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Nice one, Crypto Dog. Uh, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services, help people understand what they're doing with digital tokens and how to implement that and get it in the hands of customers and deal with all of those tricky questions getting there. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Sandra? Sandra.ro at juccouncil.org. Beautiful. And Emin? Um, Twitter, Elite Hacksaw, E-L-3-3-T-H-4-X-0-R. Yeah. The, yeah, okay, awesome. Um, and you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. A big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, and Hannah, and of course, Alex Woodhouse, our star editor. Thank you for listening. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week.
Goodbye.